Welcome to Ottoman History Podcast. Today we'll discuss clean technology and renewable energy in the United Arab Emirates. While the Ottomans had, since the 16th century, controlled areas near the western shores of the Arabian Peninsula, like Mecca and Medina, the eastern shores of the Arabian Peninsula were under British protection from the 1820s until after World War II, when the United Kingdom pulled back from its global empire. In 1971, the United Arab Emirates, or the UAE, was founded with its capital in Abu Dhabi. About half hour's drive from Abu Dhabi sits Mustar City. Welcome to Mazda City, the city of possibilities. A daring and evolutionary journey to build the world's most advanced and sustainable community. Mustar touts itself as a rapidly growing clean tech cluster, business free zone, and one of the world's most sustainable urban communities. The buildings are powered by clean energy, constructed using green building materials and designed to reduce energy and water consumption by 40%. We'll speak today with Dr. Gökçe Günal, who spent over a year at Mostar for her research. We'll talk about why private and state agencies in Abu Dhabi have spent billions of dollars on this project. My interlocutors told me that the environment is a sexy part of the economy. We'll talk about the social and political questions that green technologies raise. A lot of people protested and said, wait, so you're building a police state here, a technocratic police state. As well as the questions that they seldom answer. How do you scale up from using your fridge in a responsible manner to mitigating climate change and saving humanity? Welcome to Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Matt Kazarian, recording in Istanbul with Gökçe Günel. Thanks for having me, Matt. Gökçe Günel is assistant professor in the School of Middle Eastern and North African Studies at the University of Arizona, where she studies the anthropology of energy and climate change. Today we'll talk with her about renewable energy and clean technology in the Emirates, in the Middle East, and around the globe, drawing on her book, Spaceship in the Desert, Energy, Climate Change, and Urban Design in Abu Dhabi out from Duke University Press in 2019. So I wanted to start with a question that comes up a lot when I'm talking to people about this Mostar project, because a lot of people have heard of it because the marketing was quite widespread, especially at the opening. And uh, recent media coverage actually pokes fun at Mostar and how in over a decade since the groundbreaking, the grand visions of the city have failed to materialize. But at the beginning of your book, you cast doubt on whether judging Mustar's success or failure is the best way to learn from this ongoing experiment. Instead, you argue that it's more useful to look at the conflicting ideas of success or failure that develop in the context of renewable energy and clean technology projects. So can you talk a little bit about your position on this? Um, one thing I was really drawn to, especially as I was like, as I, when I got back from um, my field work at Mazdar and I was uh, working on the book project, was all this coverage that was basically poking fun at the failures of the Mazdar project, right? So there was one article in the Guardian which attracted a lot of attention about sort of the um, it, which called Mazdar City the first ghost eco city, 
But actually, I think a lot of the people who are involved in the project are upset with that coverage, saying, you know, there's actually people living here or people that are going to school at Mazdar Institute, etc. So that made me think that maybe those dichotomous descriptions of Mazdar are not necessarily the most productive ways of thinking about this. And so there's a lot of literature and anthropology and uh, other humanities disciplines about sort of how projects failed, right? So how do grand projects fail? And I'm really drawn to that literature, and I've learned a lot from that literature, but I didn't necessarily find a coherent description of failure amongst the people who actually built Mazdar or lived on the Mazdar campus or, or contributed to the design of the project. Instead, what I found were all these arguments around whether projects were succeeding or failing or what success meant for renewable energy projects. So, for instance, some people would define Mazdar City as a testbed where projects are meant to fail, right? So you learn from those failures and everything is on, in beta mode there and everything is actually like the software on our computers, always changing. We are there to learn from those failures. And so even the failures themselves are seen as successes because we have the opportunity to actually experience them there. So then I thought that, that maybe I shouldn't necessarily describe these projects as successes or failures, but look at the potentialities of these projects. So how do people see potential in these projects or perhaps enhance the potential of these projects? So, of course, like any other mega project, Mazdar had a lot of different kinds of actors with a lot of different kinds of agendas. And they have different desires. They have different personal motivations or professional motivations. Some of them have very global motivations or spiritual motivations even in being part of this development of an eco-city. So perhaps one way in which I could bring all of those people's ideas together was to look at uh, how they visualize or how they imagine the potentialities of these projects instead of seeing how they label issues, successes or failures. So it's not as much as whether the project created the thing that it meant to create as much as how the the stakeholders and the scientists and the engineers and whoever else was involved, how they were talking about the potential for that project to one day perhaps get there. Maybe someday in the future it would deliver on that, or maybe the process of, of trying to deliver that final state would uh, provide a breakthrough in something completely different. Exactly, exactly. That That's a good way of summarizing it, I think. So some of that media coverage that I was talking about was commenting on the personal rapid transit system at Mustar. There's a short description of it in a clip on the website. Here's the clip. Residents and visitors can leave their cars behind and enjoy the open and pedestrian-friendly neighborhoods. Integrated, clean and smart transportation systems, including a fleet of electric vehicles and driverless cars, keep the city accessible and livable as it grows. So the vision was grand. A system with the benefits of mass transit as well as the benefits of personal vehicles, and a system that was meant to expand to 1,800 rapid transit pods, 87 stations, zero carbon emissions. And yet, the system takes people in Mustard to just one key destination, the parking lot. To many, this would qualify as failure. But what did you learn from studying the personal rapid transit system and averting that instinct to immediately label it as failure? Um, so many uh, people would remember the personal rapid transit system project from uh, a famous book, uh, Bruno Latour's Aramis, which studied the uh, production of a per similar personal rapid transit system in Paris. And that project was canceled. And, uh, and Latour's book actually tries to understand 
who killed Aramis? How did Aramis die? Why did the project get cancelled? And and the book is a really fun read. It's written like a detective novel where you're trying to actually find the culprit and find the killer. So because of the sort of the issues that I discussed earlier about the sort of the the confusions around the definitions of success and failure on on the site, um, my narrative of the personal rapid transit system at Mazdar doesn't necessarily come up with a killer or with a sort of a smooth solution to this detective novel. Instead, I basically try to follow all the various narratives around the personal rapid transit project and see how people uh, identified as success or how people identified as failure. So multiple people all uh, had a different perspective on the issue. So it's not an urban mobility system in the way that it was imagined. But for instance, some people argue that, you know, it brings all our imaginations of of a comfortable future to fore. It allows us to think that in the future, although we're gonna, there's going to be climate change and energy scarcity, this is such an optimistic vision of the future where we're going to ride in these smooth uh, pod cars. Can you describe the pod cars a little bit, just physically? What are we talking about here? So the pod cars are, there were actually two types of pod cars. One of them is the VIP pod car with like kind of leather seats. And like, even the optimistic future has class. Even the optimistic, of course, this is this fundamental to this optimistic future in Abu Dhabi <laughs> is class and class distinctions and exclusions. So the pod cars would, are ba- built for four to six people and they take people from the parking lot to the Mazdar Institute building and the ride takes about two and a half minutes. Uh, it's free of charge. And so that was critical to the project because initially the architects who designed the project and the consultants who came up with the project always to- they'd always told me that the reason why Foster and Partners won the competition to design Mazdar City was because they came up with this uh, mode of urban transit because again it has privacy it eliminates the driver from the picture it generates this kind of private and public transport coming together people can go anywhere they want but remain carbon free right and it's still it's still a luxurious form of transport uh although some people thought that they were they just looked like golf carts <laughs> but um so it's this imaginary, it's this optimistic imaginary that you're talking about, that it was so powerful that you're saying that it actually helped Foster and Partners, the company that that won the contract to design Mustard, it helped them win it. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So that optimism is, I think, really important in the whole design of the Mazdar project, right? So the podcar is just one example of it, but there's every aspect of Mazdar kind of capitalizes on the imagination that we're going to continue to live our lives just the way we live now so the status quo can be maintained actually can even be improved for a a select few we're going to make it a a more polished version of the of our present so tomorrow holds a better today exactly exactly so i in the book i refer to it as a status quo utopia so the idea is that the status quo is actually a best case scenario for for the people who are building this. So they desire to build a city like this is to maintain that status quo into the future. Mm. Um, on that note, you talk a little bit about the unique relationship that Mustar City has to time. It positions itself as the city of the future. And this is one reason that it appears to be a spaceship in the desert. Could you talk a little bit about the title and this relationship of the project to time 
Yeah, thanks for that question. I mean, you you explained how you there was so much media coverage about the project in the earlier years of the project. Uh, most of that coverage framed the city as the city of the future, and and I wondered what that meant. And so that was one of the things I always ask people when I was doing uh, research at Mazdar. And while I was asking people, I actually found how. One way of describing the project that one of the students at Mazdar Institute referred to the city as a spaceship in the desert in a blog post. And that way of describing the city became very popular. A lot of different kinds of media or administrators or executives at the company were all thinking about the city as a spaceship in the desert and promoting it as that. So then what does it mean to think about the city as a spaceship, right? So that generates interesting relationship to time and to space. So uh, the spaceship in itself imagines a future in which sort of this enhanced or sophisticated environment has been created where people can live insulated from the environment surrounding them. So the desert becomes sort of reconceptualized as a hostile environment that should not be inhabited except in the manner of sort of sitting inside a spaceship. And of course the idea of the spaceship is also kind of interesting because it imagines um, a frontier that's going to be discovered through being in that spaceship, right? And all the actors that are in that spaceship are there for a reason. So there are no sort of idle kind of loiterers. (laughs) Everyone's there because they're all astronauts with a mission guiding the spaceship into the future that Abu Dhabi imagines for itself. And that future is a sort of future of renewable energy and clean technology in this context, right? So the so the oil revenues that Abu Dhabi is generating are going to be replaced by revenues from a knowledge-based economy, and that knowledge-based economy is going to both draw on the connections that Abu Dhabi already has uh, in the energy sector, but also build new connections with um, technology companies so that in the future, the government of Abu Dhabi can sell renewable energy and clean technology instead of oil. And this is how they tout the project uh, even today. They really push this business aspect. Exactly, exactly. And because because in this imagination, again, of the future, ecological and political systems might collapse, but businesses seem to, to actually persist despite all kinds of transformations that are happening. This assumption that the future looks business-friendly, even if there's been environmental and ecological collapse. Exactly. And the business friendliness of that future is something that's needs to, that's emphasized over and over. When I asked people what, how they would define the environment, uh, many of my interlocutors told me that the environment is a sexy part of the economy, right? So if the environment is actually seen as a part of the economy, then of course it makes sense for this project to be defined through its business friendliness. Mm. What do they mean when they say the environment is a sexy part of the economy? Well, what they mean is that the environment, uh, that environmental technologies or environmental or green businesses are going to flourish in the future and that um, people who want to, to invest in new projects now should invest in environmentally friendly projects. Because, of course, again, one of the assumptions is that uh, capitalism is able to resolve the problem of climate change and energy scarcity in the future. So if we only replace, um, say, businesses with green businesses replace um, oil with solar panels, then we're going to be able to actually um, live exactly the way we live and consume exactly the way we consume. Rather than proposing an alternative system or rather than looking into the ways that the, the, the current structures of capitalism are actually what are causing environmental degradation, they're saying 
no, in fact, we just need to tweak it. We need to green everything. Exactly. And that current structures of capitalism can solve the climate change problem rather than current structures of capitalism as being the reason as to why we have environmental crises. You use the term technical adjustment to describe this idea that new business models, new technologies, new designs could be aimed at mitigating climate change and future energy scarcity. One concrete example you talk about in this context is uh, at Mustar, an energy-based currency called Ergos. Could you explain this idea of technical adjustments uh, with reference to this example of the energy currency Ergos? Sure. So um, I think you gave a great definition of technical adjustments in that I'm trying to see how business solutions, design solutions could be seen as ways in which we could overcome the climate change or uh, future energy scarcity problems without uh, revising our political perspectives on capitalism, our ethical or moral standings in regards to, say, uh, consumerism, etc. So try to preserve the status quo while at the same time battling climate change issues. Some of the faculty members who were teaching at Mazdar Institute came together to propose a project where they would replace the national currency of the UAE, the dirham, with Argos on the Mazdar city grounds. So instead of being paid in dirhams, the people at Mazdar city could be paid in Argos, which so could be paid in kilowatt hours, and could exchange kilowatt hours uh, with the vendors on site in order to acquire whatever goods they could acquire. And so the idea here is that instead of looking to the ways the monetary system we have today is itself perhaps a cause of some of the problems we face or it structures some of the ways of life that are leading to environmental degradation, for example, it's saying, no, no, a monetary system is fine. We just need to tweak it and make it energy-based. Exactly. And so there would still be a, a market of exchange. So you would be, um, it would be a cap-and-trade system, right? So you would be, say, uh, paid in kilowatt hours, but at the end of the month, if you saved your kilowatt hours and your friend kept the lights on for too long and... My irresponsible friend. Exactly. They used up all their kilowatt hours so you could sell your friend the kilowatt hours you have but maybe at a marked-up price. Exactly, at a marked-up price. Because energy is scarce. Got it. Exactly. So it's kind of trying to bring market dynamics into very personal decisions. But you, you talk about how one of the big obstacles that this experiment faced was exactly this, that these are very personal decisions. They also involve a lot of surveillance. Like, how do, how do you know whether I'm leaving the lights on? You have to watch my electronics use or whatever. Exactly. So especially in this Argos project, the surveillance aspect of the of sustainability became very prominent in that the people who were building up the Argos project were arguing that we have to decide whether it's going to be about individual freedoms or is it about um, mitigating climate change. The decision there is very clear and those two things are posed as being impossible to reconcile. So you have to pick one over the other. One of the arguments that some of the scientists made was that uh, this is a sacrifice we're making for humanity. So we're saving humanity uh, by giving up our individual freedoms. So we uh, let corporations know how we use our fridge or our dishwasher or whatever, and when we use electricity at and in which location. And in response, we're going to receive this major benefit of actually mitigating climate change. So the 
the abstraction there is quite unclear, right? How do you scale up from using your fridge in a responsible manner to mitigating climate change and saving humanity? But that abstraction and that scaling up was very useful for people to both convince themselves and their colleagues and each other about sort of the uh, and others who are writing about the project um, and thinking about the project. So in what other realms of everyday life, maybe the everyday life of some of our listeners, for example, would you see examples of technical adjustments? I see examples like uh, electric cars or biodegradable plastic bags as being sort of different versions of technical adjustments in that we continue to use the exact same category of sort of good, but we just make it green and we continue to consume plastic bags, but we just make sure that they're actually biodegradable or we continue to have cars but we just change the fuel and continue to use the same forms of urban transport for instance and I see these as being sort of piecemeal means of addressing the climate change challenge which is much larger than thinking about plastic bags and thinking about car transport so I find it important to draw attention to those piecemeal means and how we imagine them and why we adopt them but at the same time foreground the fact that we can't necessarily solve the climate change challenge uh, one plastic bag at a time. <laughs> we'll be back after a short musical break. Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Matt Kazarian, speaking here today with Gökçe Gunel about clean technology and renewable energy in the United Arab Emirates. Others have ironically noted that the funding for a utopian eco-city like Mustar came out of one of the world's largest oil producers, as well as one of the world's least hospitable climates, the desert. Going beyond the tongue-in-cheek comments about this, could you talk a little bit about why it actually made sense that a government funded by oil and gas and set in an environment like the desert gave rise to a project like Mustar? Yeah, that's, I think that's a really important question because, because of the sort of the uh, critique that uh, you always hear about Mustar's uh, location. I think one reason why it made sense for the government of Abu Dhabi to invest in a renewable energy clean technology through building an eco-city was they already are familiar with the world of energy, right? Um, we're already very good at oil, why can't we very good, be very good at solar or wind or other forms of renewable energy? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the idea was that if Abu Dhabi managed to build an eco-city in the desert, they could perhaps export that eco-city all over the world. So if the eco-city can function within the desert, it can function anywhere, right? So they can, there would be copies of Mazdar City all over the world, and there would be sort of a chain of uh, Mazdars different kinds of spaceships in different kinds of environments, basically a spaceship, not in the desert necessarily. The desert was then seen as a very very generative environment where if the challenges of the desert can be overcome, then then Mazda can function anywhere. The desert offers challenges, but it also offers one clear benefit, which is that it's a big, empty space. There's no existing, there was nothing in Mustar before Mustar. Mm -hmm. Um, When you try to take these models to existing cities with existing systems, it's a little difficult. Uh, how How did your interlocutors kind of square that circle? So one way in which Mustar would be exported was as a full sort of eco city 
But the other way they thought well, Mazdar would be exported would be by sort of taking little pieces uh, of technology that were being developed on site. One of those little pieces that is still being developed there are various forms of carbon dioxide capture and storage. And you spoke with a lot of the actors involved in these carbon dioxide and capture and storage, also in CCS projects. These are projects that may be useful in keeping carbon out of the atmosphere. The jury's sort of still out on whether whether they will be in the long term, but they're definitely useful for getting oil out of the ground. What kinds of tensions did you observe arising from the opponents and the proponents of CCS? And what did these discussions tell you about clean energy technology development as a process? I think the CCS example is great in seeing why Abu Dhabi becomes a good place for the development of clean technologies and renewable energies. So um, CCS technologies are uh, very popular amongst oil producers uh, because if you inject carbon dioxide into depleting oil wells, all of a sudden you're able to extract more oil from those oil wells. And um, by using uh, carbon dioxide, you also free up the natural gas that would ordinarily be used in this process. So uh, you're saving that natural gas and you're extracting more oil, which adds to, again, your export potential. So As well as your carbon footprint. (laughs) As well as your carbon footprint, exactly. So... So it becomes. So it was very important for oil-producing countries to have carbon capture and storage be recognized as a climate change mitigation technique. Although, again, there are so many questions about whether it mitigates climate change or whether it just allows um, some decision makers to bury carbon dioxide or to use carbon dioxide in order to extract more oil. And for the listeners who may not be familiar with carbon capture technology, what are all these risks? Because it sounds nice on its face. We We just capture it, we put it in underground storage, like nuclear waste or something. We just put it away and then, you know, at least as a stopgap, on its face it sounds reasonable. But what are the risks that are involved? What would happen if it leaked? Uh, What would happen if it leaked to a different nation state? What would happen if it actually... um... Because the leakages can be dangerous. There's sometimes naturally carbon dioxide seeps into the air. I think you talked about an example of someplace in Africa. Exactly. Carbon dioxide came from somewhere in the earth and it, people were dying of asphyxiation. Exactly. So, yeah, it's, it's, it is a dangerous process and it's also unclear for how long it needs to be maintained underground and, and who's going to be the responsible body for making sure that it remains underground. And in addition to all of those institutional measures, it remains to be seen again. The, I think the, there's a calculation that you brought up earlier whereas, where you're looking at, okay, so we're enhancing our oil recovery by burying carbon dioxide. Do you imagine it as being a really a mitigation scenario or is it, again, a scenario which allows us to sort of continue burning more oil? Um, so I think it's actually as a provisional measure. I mean, some people support it as a provisional measure and some people would say that, you know, in, it, instead of investing in carbon capture and storage technologies, we should invest in renewable energy and clean technology, other forms of renewable energy and clean technology. Reduce consumption of oil rather reduce than... Consumption of oil rather than mitigate it to, maybe mitigate its effects. Exactly. So reduce... Uh, but, but other people argue that, you know, there are so many coal plants all over the world and those coal plants are not going to go away. So maybe building carbon capture and storage technologies is helpful for those scenarios where, say, Chinese coal plants are not going to go away. So let's invest in this technology so that China's carbon emissions will decrease in the next decade or two. 
So, I mean, I think it needs to be contextualized, I think, based on sort of where it's being applied and how it's being applied. So another aspect of this I wanted to touch on is the the importance of upfront capital. In what ways do you see the fact that Abu Dhabi has access to the massive amounts of wealth that are generated by selling its oil and gas? Um, how do you see this affecting the transferability of projects like Mustar to other parts of the world where there may not be as much capital lying around? Um, yeah, I mean, actually, this is something that especially students at Mazdar Institute uh, discuss all the time. They even stage the debate club performance to explicitly debate whether Mazdar as a project is transferable to other places or not. And one side of the conversation was about it's not transferable because it requires a lot of oil capital, uh, which other country in the world would be able to invest $22 billion in an eco-city project. The other group said that, yes, Mazda is transferable, gave examples of other kinds of technologies, like they said, for instance, well, a car, it took a lot of effort and a lot of financing to build the first car, but see how it's spread all around the world now. So other technologies have also required a lot of capital investment. But over the years, if we see the global horizons of Mazda as being uh, longer than the next decade, longer than maybe the next century, then we imagine other kinds of solutions where the capital necessary to invest in a project like this will become more available. But of course, I think in these conversations, I found it interesting that it was unclear what Mazdar really was, right? In these conversations, is Mazdar a, a sum of all the technologies or, or that are being experimented with on the site? Or does also Mazdar come with a certain kind of ideology of its own? And is this also an ideology that's going to be transferred to the rest of the world? I mean, one example, just because it's a popular culture example, I think a lot of people would be able to relate to it, is in one iteration of the project, one of the executives said, you know, we're building Blade Runner here. <laughs> and and people who... Blade Runner, the, the dystopic science fiction future, right? Exactly, exactly. And and a lot of people uh, who are familiar with Blade Runner and who are familiar with the Mazdar project protested and said, wait, so you're building a police state here, a technocratic police state here mm -hmm. that's going to be cut off from the world at large and it's going to be a project that relies on certain kinds of sort of, um, again, rational planning or certain kinds of technologies and, and the people here are going to need all of those technologies in order to just breathe, in order to stay alive, right? And, and the world outside is going to be this uninhabitable... Um, wasteland. Wasteland, exactly. And so it became unclear to the people who were even part participating in the project what the, exactly the vision of Mazda, the ideological, the political vision of Mazda was beyond those technologies. So in a way, it's important to also lay out what the politics of the city is in addition to the kind of technological infrastructures of the city when right. thinking about its transferability. That you can't just think about the development of these technologies in isolation from the political and social worlds that they're going to be implemented. It's like the ergos we were talking about before. Exactly. So I think it's that's and it's easy to forget that even in, again in the space of a d debate club performance like that. Mm -hmm. But it's also important to remember that that those technologies bring certain kinds of social and political worlds with them. One of your interlocutors provocatively called Mustar, quote, the only utopia to emerge from the Middle East since Islam, end quote. And yet, to get so excited about the project, to, to sort of buy into this utopian vision of clean technology and renewable energy saving us from the future, we have to, as we were just saying, 
sort of ignore or exclude from our line of sight the the really important political, social, even moral questions that come up with implementing these kinds of technologies. Could you talk about any more examples that you came across of this importance of excluding or separating the technological or the economic from the political, social, moral? So I think one great example is is just about uh, a simple technology of solar panels. So Abu Dhabi is usually perceived to be a great place for producing uh, solar energy. But when decision makers at Mazdar built their first solar power stations, uh, they realized that the solar panels were not as effective as they imagined they would be. And they quickly understood that this was because of uh, high levels of dust and humidity that were blocking the solar panels and creates this sort of thick sort of layer of mud on the solar panels, which is undesirable if you want to produce solar energy more effectively. Mm -hmm. In some ways, it's actually, it would be nicer if the climate had some rain that would naturally just clean these. Sure, or if it was very dry. Right. And what happened was they tried to develop these technologies for cleaning the solar panels. And one of the engineers I was talking to told me, you know, we've finally come up with a solution. And I asked him, so what's the solution? And he said, we call it a man with a brush. (laughs) Okay, the engineer told you this. Yeah, and and he was saying, I mean, he was it was a joke for him, but at the same time, we were touring around these solar power stations, and he was showing me the men with brushes that were walking around the solar panels and um, in the blistering desert heat, exactly, and cleaning the solar panels. And the imagination is that in the future we're not going to need this man, men with brushes. We're going to eliminate them and there's going to be a technological solution to cleaning these solar panels. But what's going to happen then at that point is not that these men with brushes are going to be included within the spaceship. Uh, instead, they're just going to be sent back home wherever they're coming from because most of this is the immigrant labor force in Abu Dhabi that's mm-hmm. doing the cleaning of these solar panels. So they might be coming from India or the Philippines and Abu Dhabi is no longer going to need their work and they're going to be sent back to where they're from and the spaceship in the desert is going to be be able to function autonomously only by relying on these newly found, newly sort of uh, activated technological measures. The definition of humanity is selective for the Mazdar project. It's unclear if the man with a brush would ever be uh, part of that that definition of humanity. We know that the astronauts that are part of the spaceship are part of that humanity. We know that the people who are funding this project, who are designing that project, are perhaps part of that understanding of humanity. But the man with a brush, I mean, he's only going to be part of this model as long as he's able to uh, make those solar panels work. Mm -hmm. And as long as there's no technology to replace him. Professor Gunel, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to talk. We've discussed clean technology, renewable energy, and the debates and disconnects that these topics evoke in their implementation. We've drawn on Gökçe Gunel's book, Spaceship in the Desert, which is out from Duke University Press this year, 2019. For those of you who would like to find out more, we will post some images and a bibliography of further reading at our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where you can stay up to date with our newest episodes and connect on social media with our community of over 30,000 listeners. That's all for this episode. Until next time, take care.